بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So in the last lesson of this subject which is the subject of or relating to the study of Sahih Muslim and to complete our study for this four weeks we're going to do a practical study of some of the ahadith now again I want you to understand the purpose because someone might say well you know like out of all those thousands of ahadith how are we going to study how are we going to study them in, a, in two hours? All we want to do is take examples. And the purpose of these examples is to give you a practice at dealing with the book. And how to deal with ahadith in general. So we go through different phases. The first thing that we do is we read the hadith and we correct our reading because it may be that you read the hadith and your print your copy of Sahih Muslim has a mistake in it or you misread a word or something like that so in this case the very first thing we do is to make sure that our reading is correct and what's the best way of making sure your reading is correct? Is to read the book to one of the ulama. But what if you can't read the book to one of the ulama? In my opinion, there are two things that you can do that will help you a lot. Number one, choose the correct print of the book. Choose a print of the book that is known for being reliable. And that's not always the latest and shiniest print to come out of the, you know, of the different uh, uh, places or publishing houses. In fact, usually they are the worst. And often the best and most accurate prints are the old, old ones. Why? Because the old ones, the people who used to work on them were ulama. The people who used to correct the words and write the fatha and the kasra and you know like organize the text, they were ulama, scholars. Now, anyone who has yani, 20,000 dirhams and he can mess around with a book and put the fatha and kasra on it and order the words around wherever he likes and it's become tijara, it's become a business. So it's not always the case, sometimes some of the new ones that come out are really good but often the new ones that come out you're lucky if the person worked on it, who worked on it was even a talib ilm, let alone a alim and the purpose of bringing it out is tijara so it's bring it out quickly and bring it out often whereas sometimes the really really old copies the people who worked on them were scholars and maybe he will work on one book for 10 years. So the quality of the book that comes out is very different to the quality that comes out for the purpose of just commercial prints. But there are, there are exceptions to the rule. 
Sometimes the old ones have a lot of mistakes in. They were taken from a manuscript that was inaccurate. Then another manuscript came along later on that became, that was found that was more accurate. And, and there are different situations. And sometimes even among the new prints, you can choose a print from the new ones that is more true to the original text. And sometimes you can choose a print that has better footnotes in it, better checking in it. And there are so many different things in this. But generally, the first thing you can do if you can't read the book to a scholar, and even if you do read the book to a scholar, you should choose a print which is the most reliable. Because that's less work for you. What are you going to do if you start reading the book to a sheikh and he starts telling you that every word you're reading is wrong? Then literally you're having to write the whole thing out again. So it helps to have a copy that is a good or a reasonable copy. And wallahi, there is just as much differing of opinion about these issues, which copy is best, as there is in any mas'ala faqiyah. And if you think the Masail Fiqhiyah with the Hanafis and the Shafi'i and the Maliki and the, any, there's ikhtilaf, wait till you see the ikhtilaf of people about which book copy is the best and which print is the best. You will see one person praise a book. He will say, this print, wallah, there's nothing like it. And you'll see someone come along and say, I've never seen more mistakes than there are in this print. So, this is another issue completely. It's not my, any, I'm not the world's greatest expert in it. Uh, you had Ustad Abdurrahman Hassan, he's better than me at this issue, and knowing which print is best and stuff like that. But you can search it online and you can read the different opinions about it and things like that on the forums. People often write on the, the Arabic forums which print is best, and then they have a debate. And they, you know, for this you have to bring a dalil. But, anyways, my point is you have a print. The second thing you can do to when you can't read the book to the Sheikh is to listen to the book being read to the Shaykh through the audio. And wallah, this is a very, very important thing. So I'll give you like a, a benefit. The Qutb al-Sitta, generally, most, almost, all, the, almost all of the six books, like uh, almost all of the hadith in the six books, have been read to uh, our Shaykh, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad, Hafizahullah ta'ala, uh, and they are recorded as part of the Maktabatul Haram, As-Sawtiyah, the audio recordings that come from the Masjid al-Nabawi. And you can hear most of the time, Shaykh Abdurrahman Rashaidan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, reading the text to Shaykh Abdul Muhsin. This is for the Qutb al-Sitta. And it's very, very good because you can sit and you can listen and you can correct your you can correct your text based on what Sheikh Abdurrahman reads and what Sheikh Abdul Muhsin comments on it. He might say, no, it's like this. Or he might change the way and you can check the reading of the word. So this is also a very beneficial thing. And likewise for any book, many times the Sheikh is explaining, any Sheikh is explaining a book, his student is reading and on the audio tape you can hear the student read and you can hear the Sheikh correct it. And this is a good second best if you can't actually read the book to the sheikh for whatever reason. At the moment, most of you don't know enough Arabic to sit and read a book to one of the ulama. Uh, but at least what you can do is you can listen to that book being read. And you can correct your copy. 
especially before you memorize. Because wallah, there's nothing in memorization worse than memorizing something wrong because you didn't have the text correct in the first place. Memorizing something wrong because you didn't have the text done correctly in the first place. And someone might say, well, why, is all, why do all of these differences happen? We have to remember, these books didn't turn up in word format, you know. Uh, they were written by hand in manuscripts and manuscripts were copied from person to person to person and then you get a manuscript from this person bearing in mind there are some books that are narrated by multiple people like Sahih Muslim how many of Imam Muslim's students took that book from him and wrote it down and there are differences even among those students about what they wrote down and then they were copied and copied and then one copy is in Egypt and one copy is here and one copy is in Medina and one copy is in Mecca and one copy is in India and what the people try to do when they produce a book is they try to gather those copies as many as they can and try to like judge which one is the best and in that there's a lot of difference of opinion people will say I think this copy was better and this. so there is a lot of like there's a, a whole science to this but as I said, if you want to read the book accurately, try to get yourself a good uh, copy of the book and try to listen to that book being read by one of the scholars or to one of the scholars and correct your copy as you, you, know, as you go. So this is inshallah something especially beneficial. And the least reliable copies in general are the ones that you find online by the people have just typed out. Like for example, you know, what you find, like I said, on sunnah.com, you find the Qutb al-Sitta. I mean, there's is, I mean, alhamdulillah, it's okay, but generally, the least reliable copies are the ones that you just find, like somebody typed up online. Because now it's like a copy of a copy of a copy. It started as a manuscript, and then it came into a book, and then someone was just typing it into their computer. So that also has a lot of, they tend to have a lot of mistakes in it. Not always. The Qutb al-Sitta are better than others. Because generally, they're fairly well, you know, like well studied and well checked. But, so you have to try and make sure that your text is accurate to begin with. So the first thing you do, going back to the methodology, is you read the hadith and you correct the text. Because you can't study something if your text isn't correct, right? If your text is wrong in the first place, how are you going to study that hadith? So you correct your text. Generally, the next thing that we do, at least from the, the, the manhaj or the methodology of the scholars of hadith, the scholars of fiqh may have a different methodology, but the scholars of hadith, we, or the scholars of hadith, uh, what they do and what we, yani, emulate from them is the next thing that we study is the isnad and it's not always the case some of the scholars of hadith leave the isnad to the end but generally in the books in the books of sharh uh, the books of explaining the hadith the first thing they deal with are rijal al-sanad the men in the chain and the purpose from that is to know if that hadith is authentic or inauthentic. Now, alhamdulillah, in Sahih Muslim, we don't have a problem with that. But still, there are benefits in the isnad. 
you get to know some of the teachers of Imam Muslim and some of the people, famous people in the chain. Even if you don't know everyone, but at least some names you should become familiar with. Some names you should become familiar with. So you should be like, oh, okay. Shu'bah, okay, I know who that is. Ibn al-Hajjaj, al-Wasiq. I know something about him. I know a little bit. You know, so you just like, you, you pick up these things. And also, you develop your knowledge of hadith so that you can better understand when it comes to the books where there are differences of opinion about authenticity. You can better understand the kind of the way that the chain of narration works. And to be honest, as we said before, the chain of the narration is an essential part of the hadith. And one of the biggest problems we have now is that people, you know, like we have no chains of narration. Everything is just, you know, cut and paste the text and send it out. And you don't know if it's something typed and made up or if it's something reliable. So generally, don't ignore the chain of narration. Start with it because it takes time. It takes many, many years before you become really accustomed to it. So at least if you start now with something like Sahih Muslim, where it's not a big deal, it's authentic anyway, you can get, you can get a habit of the narrators and get to learn a little bit about them, especially the imma, the imams, the ones who are you know, known for being huge, great imams of Islam in hadith, in fiqh, in aqidah, in so on and so forth. You can learn a lot about them just by reading the, the, the chain of narration. And sometimes you find some benefits. Like you might find even in Sahih Muslim, we're going to study now a hadith or two hadith which Al-Imam al-Daraqutani said are weak. Now he didn't say the text of the hadith is weak, but anyway, he said that the, I mean, he said that the, the chain is weak. And we're going to study the reply, the response as to why Ad-Daraqutani rahimahullah ta'ala was wrong in this statement. So that's also, you know, you can, you can even in Sahih Muslim, you can find some areas where it's, you will come up with a study of the Senate to, give, to come with a conclusion. And as I said, one of the nice things that you can get the habit of using is we said, if you, you know, just, just to start with at a basic level, using Taqrib Al-Tahrib by Al-Imam Ibn Hajar. Al-Asqalani Rahimahullah Ta'ala And as we said with Taqrib Al-Tahrib It's very simple It's just one line for every narrator And it's in alphabetical order as well So you look for the narrator And you can find his full name You can find roughly what age Did he belong to What tabaqa did he belong to What age you know, Was he like from the tabi'een The major tabi'een From the small tabi'een Was he, you know, when did he come Was he a sahabi Was so you can find about the narrators of the Kutub al-Sitta and those other books which were written by the same authors like Al-Adab al-Mufrad by Imam al-Bukhari uh, and so on. So you can, you, know, you can start to just look up their names and find a little bit about them and so on. The next thing that we do, so we've done the, we've read, we've corrected the text and we have studied the narrators of the text okay the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at the words that are unknown to us and again I would encourage you to start doing this in Arabic now you might say but I don't speak Arabic 
even so, you have to understand that when a translator translates, the translator is putting their fiqh into the translation. Which is why Allah Musta'an, if you get a translator who is jahil about the sharia or jahil about the subject that he's translating, Wallah, it doesn't matter if he has 10 PhDs. He will give you yani, the foam of the sea. He'll give you the rubbish that is carried by the, the flood. Because he, he, in the first place, when you translate every word, you have to choose what you think the context is and what you think the fiqh of the word is. You have to, you have to convey that to somebody. Because in English, I can't just write all the Arabic words out. So I have to choose what I think the word is. So it's really important that the translator, I remember I, when I used to translate for one of the publishing companies back in the day, I used to edit for them. They sent me a translation of a book in Mustalah al-Hadith, in the science of Hadith. And the translator was really well known, very good translator. And the translation was horrible. It was so bad that sometimes he translated like black to white and white to black. Why? Because that translator had never had an experience of Mustalah al-Hadith. He had never studied Mustalah al-Hadith, the science of Hadith. And that's no blame on him. He had never studied it. And, he didn't, and so the terminology that he would read, he wouldn't understand what that terminology actually meant. For example, when they say mudtarib, this Hadith is mudtarib. And muttarib is something that's like this. It's like, it's, it's like it goes between two states. It's like sometimes it's like back and forth. But that has a particular meaning to the scholars of hadith. That has a technical meaning that they understand. And so, for example, someone might come to a hadith and they may say, Turuqu hadha al-hadith muttaribah. The chains of this hadith are, like literally, in terms of a literal sense, they're, they're shaky. So he may say, the roads have bumps in them. The roads of this hadith have bumps in them. Or the roads of this hadith are not flat. You're thinking, the roads, what is like? Because he doesn't understand the terminology of the scholars of hadith. What they meant by this are the chains have differences in them the chains they have differences in them which appear to contradict each other in the same and in the same hadith so the point here is when you go to look at words you don't understand in a hadith you should try to look at the original arabic terminology if you can so if you come across a word in english you don't understand try to look at the original arabic terminology so that you can, you know, at least you don't, because sometimes you may be taking a translator's opinion about what that hadith means. And so many times I've read the translation from Dar es Salaam, from the, of the Qutb al-Sitta, and the translator and he went to another, another place, and he went to another planet, sometimes. Like, completely different to what the hadith says. Not even remotely similar to what the hadith says. So you have to be careful about this. And what that, the reason that happened is the translator was trying to convey the meaning of what is said. 
And they had a particular understanding of what that meaning was. And so they ended up conveying something, then it goes to the editor. And the editor probably doesn't check the original Arabic. The editor checks the quality of the English and says, Oh, if you just change that word here, and you just move this text here, and you just made this sentence, and before long it's like Chinese whispers. The thing that you get out of it is nothing like the original Arabic. So be careful when we're looking at these words. We try in our best to go to the, the Arabic words as much as we can. And then from there we can look at what the English translation should be. So that's another thing. And that happens also in the Quran. And Allah, I'm very critical. And I'm not shy to say that I am extremely critical of the quality of the translation of the Quran in English. And there are open errors, clear errors in the translation of the Quran in English. So you have to be also careful of that because someone may say there's a contradiction between this and this. But the contradiction is in the translator's explanation. So this is next point. We've done the words. We've understood the words. We've understood the words. Then we come to if the hadith is a hadith of uh, ahkam, of halal and haram, we come to the fiqh of the hadith. And likewise, even if it's on another topic, generally we come into what is the explanation of the hadith, the fiqh of the hadith and the explanation of the hadith. So that might be if it's halal and haram, that might be discussing what is the mas'ala that the fuqaha, the scholars of fiqh, what did they take out from this? So they took out of this hadith, for example, we have this hadith, The sea is the one whose water is purifying and its dead are halal. Its water is purifying and its dead are halal. The scholars took out of this several masail fiqhiyya, several fiqh issues. Number one, the ruling of seawater. Is it tahir or is it mutahir? Is it pure or is it purifying? Can you use it for wudu? Can you use it for ghusl? Are there any conditions of that? And so you talk about, you know, you take the issue out. What kind of seafood is halal to eat? And is there any kind of seafood that is haram to eat? What is the meaning of mayta, the dead of the sea? Is it the one that you kill in the sea or the one that is found dead in the sea? Does it include things that are not fish, like prawns and crabs and whatever else? So there's a lot of, you know, the, the scholars of fiqh took masail fiqhiyya. Even if the hadith is on a different topic, like aqidah. What is the mas'ala aqadiyya? What is the aqidah mas'ala that we take out of this hadith? So we take out of this hadith that actions are a part of iman. And we refute the murji'ah who said that actions are not a part of iman. And that iman is like a light switch, it's either on or off. And so on. So each, we take the fiqh of the hadith. And generally the last thing we do is we cover fawaid benefits. So they may not be things that are like core to the hadith, but just side benefits. The way the question was asked. The way the Prophet ﷺ answered. The manners the companions had when they used it. Something in the chain of narration that just like, you know, gives us a little benefit. The benefit of, you know, oh look at what this scholar said. Look at what. So subhanAllah, you have like just general benefits. Just general fawaid, general benefits. And of course, every scholar has different ways of dealing with 
the explanation of the uh, of the hadith but this is generally a good methodology you start with the chain you look at the then you look at the uh, yani the chain the authenticity you look at the words of the hadith you go in and you explain the the actual ben, the actual key issue that the hadith is dealing with and sometimes you can add issues to that like what is the relationship between the hadith and the chapter that's especially important in sahih al-bukhari not so much in sahih muslim because the chapters came from al-imam an-nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala but sahih al-bukhari you really need to study in fact to understand the link between the hadith and the chapter wallahi yani a person has to be an alim you have to be a scholar Wallah, to understand this, the link between the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari and the chapter title. Because this is the chapter titles of Imam al-Bukhari, this is him giving his madhab, his fiqh. So often there is no apparent relation between the hadith and the chapter title. So that's another thing that you know people cover, and there are others, but you just have a general idea of how we deal with this hadith. Okay, coming to Sahih Muslim, practically, how are we going to do this with Sahih Muslim? Well, for me, and I think this is really important, is to study a text with what we call tadarruj, with step by step or level by level. Perhaps level by level is a better translation. To study a book level by level. So for example, there is a really complicated explanation of Sahih Muslim. Let me say for example, Al-Bahr, Al-Muhid, Al-Thajjaj by Sheikh Muhammad ibn Adam in Ethiopia Rahimahu ta'ala This book at the moment I think is like 40 something volumes maybe even 50, 40, 46 volumes or something like that and it's a beautiful sharh upon the aqeedah of Ahl sunnah has a very very nice sharh of Sahih Muslim explanation of Sahih Muslim but you can imagine one hadith is going to be how many pages and in how much detail and how many opinions so what do, you, what do we do with Sahih Muslim? We start with the simplest explanation that we can get. But the condition is the person explaining that simple explanation should have the aqidah of Ahl sunnah Why? Because the first time you hear something, you don't want to hear the shubhat of the mu'tazila and the sha'ira and the, you know, the whoever else. Yani. You don't want to start getting like the, the, the doubts of everybody in your mind. The first time you hear, like the first time you read the tafsir of the Qur'an, you don't want to be reading it from an Ash'ari. Why? Because their shubuhat, their doubts are going to go into your heart. The first time you heard this hadith, and you hear someone say, this hadith is an evidence for worshipping the dead in the graves, for example. Whoa, okay, what happened there? And you got like something comes into your heart, and then you have to remove it from your heart. So the first time you listen to an explanation of something, you want to listen to an explanation of a scholar who is number one simple, who's going to just simplify it for you, who's going to make tarjih. What does tarjih mean? He's going to tell you the right opinion according to him. Why is that important? Because what did we see with regard to Ibn Kathir? When we read Ibn Kathir, if the Ibn Kathir doesn't make tarjih, if he doesn't say which opinion is stronger, what are you left with? All of the opinions bouncing around inside of your head you're left going oh i don't know this person said this person said this person said i don't know which one is right so you want now we came with three things the scholar who explains this the first time you listen to it his aqidah should be 
sound. So he doesn't give you like false beliefs while he's explaining the book. It should be simple. You don't want like 50 pages per hadith. Just very simple. And he should make tarjih. He should tell you the correct opinion. Not that, you know, he's telling you fiqh and he tells you the Maliki said this and the Shafi'i said this and the Hanbali said this. Okay, next issue. The Shafi'i said this and the Maliki said this and the Hanbali next issue. The Hanafi said this without making tarjih. Because all of those opinions are going to bounce around in your head and you don't have anything to hold on to. So for Sahih Muslim, what I chose for my first sharh, my first explanation, is the explanation of our Shaykh Al-Allama, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad, Hafizahullah Ta'ala. Because the Shaykh's explanation is very short. Sometimes he will comment on a hadith for just a minute or two minutes. Sometimes ten minutes, sometimes five minutes, but not pages and pages, like just quick. It's an audio explanation. And he makes tarjih, meaning he tells you what the correct opinion is according to him. So you're not left with different opinions with so and so and It's very simple. So this is a nice explanation that I started with. But then I said, the thing is, he doesn't go into every word. And he doesn't explain every issue. So sometimes you're left and you still feel thirsty. You haven't felt like you have got everything out of the hadith that you want. So now I want a middle level sort of explanation and what I chose for this is a sharh of the sharh of al-imam al-nawawi ala sahih muslim and that's a written explanation by al-imam al-nawawi why, why al-imam al-nawawi? because this is the explanation which is mu'tamad it's the one that everyone relies upon it's the one that if someone says it's in the explanation of sahih muslim you don't have to ask him which explanation you just go straight away to Al-Minhaj by Imam Al-Nawawi. Straight away you just take Al-Imam Al-Nawawi. The problem is what? Al-Imam Al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, was upon the belief of Ahl-Sunnah, except that he sometimes fell into the belief of the Ash'arah. He was not Ash'ari, and it's not correct to call Al-Imam Al-Nawawi Ash'ari. Because the usul of the Ashairah, the essence of what they believe, is taqdeem al-aql al-naql. That your intellect is superior to the text. And overrules the text and overrides the text. That is the essence of the Ash'ari uh, aqidah, as well as rejecting the ahadith al-ahad in the matters of aqidah and so on and so forth. Al-Imam al-Nawi has nothing of that. There is not a single time that I've come across that Al-Imam Al-Nawawi puts his intellect ahead of the text. Or that he rejects the ahadith which are ahad in certain areas. But then, it doesn't exist. Or at least I haven't seen it. But what he does do is he sometimes agrees with the Ashaira in changing the meaning of the names and attributes of Allah Azza So you have to be a little bit careful about that. But alhamdulillah, the commentaries of the scholars on the work of Imam al-Nawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, and it is, this, it is I mean, it's the most famous and the best explanation of Sahih Muslim. There are plenty of commentaries where the scholar will just make a note and just tell you, just be careful about that sentence that he brought, rahimahullah, because in this sentence, he, he took the, or he, he leaned towards the opinion of the 
Ashaira. So we're going to go to the Sharh of Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala. Then, I want something more. I mean, the Sharh of Imam al-Nawawi, it's, it's very simple still, even though it's beautiful, but it's still, every hadith might be about two pages. And he'll tell you the names of the narrators. He'll tell you to correct your pronunciation. And Imam al-Nawi will tell you this word should be with a dhamma. This word should be with a fatha. This narrator is this person. This narrator is that person. So you'll, you'll get that from him. He'll tell you the fiqh of the hadith. He'll quote some of the earlier scholars. So, you know, it's very nice. But you want to like, sometimes you want to like dive right in. You want to get like, you know, even more. So for this, we're going to go to the shaf that we mentioned earlier, al-Bahr. Al-Muhit, Al-Sajjaj, the Sharh of uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad, uh, Al-Ethiopi. And he's a Sheikh who is living uh, now, Hafizahullah uh, Ta'ala. And he wrote an extensive explanation of Sahih Muslim called Al-Bahar, Al-Muhit, Al-Sajjaj. And this is, it's huge, absolutely huge. And he follows kind of that methodology I told you. He starts with the narrators and the isnad. And then, but he, you know, he will bring from all of the previous explanations of Sahih Muslim and comment on them and add to them and correct them. And you know, like, it's a big explanation. And the advantage is again that the aqidah of the Shaykh is the aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. So if there are any instances where you think that maybe and now we might have, uh, yani perhaps quoted something from the Asha'ira on a particular issue, then you can go back to that book and you can refer to it there. This like stage by stage studying, Allah, I found it to be very beneficial. Because in the beginning, you got the meaning of the hadith in one minute. And you feel comfortable that even if I don't understand anything after this, Alhamdulillah, I got the meaning of the hadith. Then you went to an imam and now you got some more information about uh, the hadith probably maybe double or triple what you got from the first explanation. Then you went to the next explanation which is in more detail and you got like some real like you know detail from it and you got like maybe 20 pa- 10 pages, 20 pages, 15 pages, whatever on a particular hadith with quotes and references and then you can look each of those up and so on. That's not the only place you might look because a hadith are not only dealt with in the explanation of Sahih Muslim. This hadith may be in Sahih Bukhari. In which case, where are we going to also go to? We're going to go to Fath al-Bari by Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar. And just as a benefit, in Fath al-Bari by Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, uh, there are a number of shiyukh uh, from them, Al-Allama uh, Sheikh bin Baz, who commented on Fath al-Bari and explained the same thing that I talked about you with Imam al-Nawawi, where Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar might quote something from the Asha'ira, uh, then Sheikh bin Baz and others have gone through and have given you in the footnotes. Like this is, you know, and they've explained that for you. So Fath al-Bari with those footnotes. With those footnotes. Go to Fath al-Bari for example. Or it might be a hadith on Aqidah. So where might you find it? In the books of Aqidah. You go back to the books of Aqidah and you study the issue there. So there are, you keep studying and you really get some detail from this hadith. So this is like a methodology. But today we're just going to limit ourselves to the explanation of Sheikh Abdul Mahsin al-Abbad 
in summary, a little bit of quotes from Imam al-Nawi and occasionally we will quote from the third uh, explanation that I mentioned. So, if Allah Azza wa gives us time and I, I, wallahi, I don't think we will have time to read from all of these uh, hadith, but we're just going to start with a couple of ahadith which deal with the topic of La ilaha illallah. So the first question is, someone tells you, whoever says La ilaha illallah will go to Jannah. You say, okay. He says, do you know the dalil for this? You say, okay, let me find it. Let me go to Sahih Muslim. Let me see if Sahih Muslim gathers any of the ahadith on this topic. The one who says La ilaha illallah is going to go to Jannah. Where am I going to find this in Sahih Muslim? So remember we said that Sahih Muslim, we can divide it broadly into sort of three kind of chunks. In the beginning we have Kitabul Iman, the book of faith. Then we have the Abwab Fiqhiyah, generally. Starting with Ibadat and Mu'amalat, so the, the, the topics of Fiqh. Starting with ibadat, so tahara, salah, zakah, fasting, hajj, and then going on to mu'amalat, nikah, divorce, marriage, divorce, buying and selling. And then you have the stuff that comes from the jawami' at the end, which is like the, the virtues of doing things and the tafsir of the Qur'an and things like that. So where am I going to find this hadith or these ahadith in Sahih Muslim? Am I going to find them throughout or am I going to find them in one place? What did we say? said Sahih Muslim, generally all of the hadith are in one place. So once I find one of them, inshallah, I've basically found all of them. And this is about La ilaha illallah. So where do we think that we're going to find this in Sahih Muslim? In the very beginning or in the, the, the fiqhi topics in the middle or in the virtues and tafsir and you know the, the things like that at the end? Where, where are we going to find it in Sahih Muslim? What do you think? In the beginning in Kitab al-Iman Because this relates to Iman It is possible we might find it among the end If we didn't find it in the beginning We may have found it among the end If it was, if it was from another angle And Imam Muslim was bringing the hadith from a different angle But generally about La ilaha illallah We're going to hope to find it in Kitab al-Iman And what we can do Is we can look through the chapter titles Why can we We can't do that with Sahih al-Bukhari because the chapter title has no relation, no obvious relation to the hadith, often. But in Sahih Muslim, we can look through the chapter titles and they basically, usually, they're just like a piece of the hadith and then all of the hadith are quoted under it. So we start going through the chapter titles in Kitab al-Iman from al-Imam al-Nawawi and uh, we see, we come across chapter 10. And uh, this chapter 10 is called Babu Dalil Ala Annaman Mata Ala Tawheed Dakhal al Jannata Qata'an. This is Imam al Nawi choosing this title. He said, The chapter of the evidence that the one who dies upon Tawheed will enter Jannah without any, any Qata'an for certain, will certainly enter Jannah. So we're thinking, okay, that sounds like what we were talking about. La ilaha illallah will take you to Jannah. And just notice as a little side, a little side benefit, notice the choice of Imam al-Nawawi, at tawheed 
And some of the people will have you think that a Tawheed was a word invented in Saudi Arabia a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. Al-Imam al-Nawawi, when he came to the ahadith describing La ilaha illallah, he chose the chapter title, the chapter that the one who dies upon Tawheed will enter Jannah for certain. So you're like, okay, now we'll have a look through these ahadith and they're all gathered in one place. Uh, in terms of numbering, before we start, this hadith uh, was numbered by Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, as hadith number 43 in his general numbering and hadith number 26 in his specific numbering. What did we say that means? The general numbering is the one that every hadith he gives it a number. But be careful here. That doesn't mean that every narration has a number. Sometimes, if the narration is the same chain, the same isnad, and the same matan. Okay, someone say, well, why did Imam Muslim mention a hadith which is the same chain and the same text? Sometimes there's an extra benefit, like the chain tells you who the narrator was. Like in the first chain, you can't tell which narrator it was. And in the second chain, you can tell who the narrator was. Like it mentions his name. Or it mentions haddathana or akhbarana. So there's some benefit. But the chain is the same and the text is the same. In this case, Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi doesn't give it a number at all. He doesn't give it a general or a specific number. And he doesn't increase either number. Because it's the exact same hadith, the same chain and the same text. Sometimes the websites, like I noticed sunnah.com, they give it a number. And even though they're supposed to be following the number of Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi, they gave a number to the second hadith, which is actually exactly the same as the first. So just be a little bit careful about that. Sometimes he doesn't give a number. But generally we said, his general numbering, he gives a number for every hadith, or for every uh, narration, sorry, for every riwayah, for every narration. And in his specific numbering, he gives a number for every hadith. Meaning a number for every individual, like uh, this, uh, every time there's a new hadith, he gives a new number. And the different chains of narration, or the different wordings, he doesn't give a new number to it. So it works like that. So this is hadith number 43 in his general numbering, and hadith number 26 in his, uh, his special or his specific numbering. First of all, we read the hadith and then we will come to the explanation of the hadith. So, Imam Muslim said, remember, we have to do this, yeah? don't get caught out. Don't get caught out and say, Haddathana Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shaybah. Because I can promise you something, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shaybah never told you anything. Because none of you met Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shaybah. So you have to begin with, Qala al-Imam Muslim, رحمه الله تعالى في كتابه المسند الصحيح الإمام مسلم said in his book المسند الصحيح and then it helps to say where because it's not fair to say الإمام مسلم said and, and, and then start from the middle of the book so you want to say الإمام مسلم said in his book المسند الصحيح in the book of في كتاب الإيمان in the book of Iman after he mentioned several other ahadith 
he said. قال, he said. قال حدثنا أبو بكر بن أبي شيبة وزهير بن حرب كلاهما عن إسماعيل بن إبراهيم قال أبو بكر حدثنا ابن علي عن خالد قال حدثنا الوليد بن مسلم عن حمران عن عثمان رضي الله تعالى عنه أرضاه أنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من مات وهو يعلم أنه لا إله إلا الله دخل الجنة قال وحدثنا محمد بن أبي بكر قال وحدثنا محمد بن أبي بكر المقدمي قال حدثنا بشر بن المفضل قال حدثنا خالد خالد الحذاء عن الوليد أبي بشر قال سمعت حمران يقول سمعت عثمان رضي الله عنه يقول سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول مثله سواء So these are two separate narrations but they are both the exact same chain and the exact same text. So Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi doesn't give them a different number not generally and not specifically. So he says Haddathana Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba. He said Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba wa Zuhair ibn Harb and Zuhair Ibn Harb narrated to us. So this is the first thing he says. Haddathana Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba wa Zuhair ibn Harb. So two of his teachers narrated this hadith to him with the same chain. And the two teachers are different, the two sittings were different, but the chain and the hadith is the same. However, Al Imam Muslim is going to be super precise here. He's going to tell you which teacher said, even though the teachers give the same chain, he's going to teach you, tell you even how they pronounce the narrator's name differently. And every little detail he's going to give you. So he says, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba. Who is Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba? He is that famous sheikh of Al-Imam Muslim, who Al-Imam Muslim narrated from him 1,540 hadith. And again, that famous Shaykh Abu Khaythama, Zuhair ibn Harb, who Al Imam Muslim narrated from him 1,281 hadith. So these are the two, one of the two, two of the famous, famous teachers of Al Imam Muslim, who he narrated more than a thousand hadith from in Sahih Muslim. So these are the two that he, you know, really frequent. They're not the only two, but they're two of the ones that are above a thousand hadith. And two of the ones that narrate from him all the time. And they're very well known. Then he says, Kilahuma, both of them narrated. An Ismail ibn Ibrahim. Both of them narrated. And when they both narrated, they narrated. An Ismail no Ibrahim. So they said An here. They both said An. Because if, if one of them had said Haddathana and one of them had said An, Imam Muslim would have differed, uh, would have differed uh, between them.
I said to you it's the same chain in the two, but it's not. There's a slight difference. That's my fault. Anyway, so they both said Ismail ibn Ibrahim. So who is Ismail ibn Ibrahim? He's ibn Muqsim al-Asadi. And he is ibn Ulayya. Now this is the issue. Because in a minute, you're going to hear someone said, Ibn Ulayya said to me. And you're going to say, hold on a second. Where did Ibn Ulayya come from? But if you looked up Ibn Ulayya's name, you would see that Ibn Ulayya, he is Ismail Ibn Ibrahim. So be careful about that. Because sometimes if you don't know the narrator, you think those two are two different people. And you might say, this chain is broken. Or how did he get here? Or he is not in the chain. Or he didn't hear from him. But you don't realize that these two people are the same person exactly. So Ismail ibn, ibn Ibrahim, he is Ibn Ulayya. Qala Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr said, who is Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba. And he's going, uh, Imam Muslim has given you the chain, but now he's going to go back and tell you the difference between what Abu Bakr said, his first teacher, and what Zuhair ibn Harb said, his second teacher. Qala Abu Bakr, haddathana ibn Ulayya. So now Abu Bakr said, haddathana. So now we know that this connection with An, between An Ismail ibn Ibrahim, that was the word that Zuhair ibn Harb used. He said An, An Ismail ibn Ibrahim. He gave you, like Zuhair ibn Harb, he said, An Ismail ibn Ibrahim. This hadith is narrated from Ismail ibn Ibrahim. But as for Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba, he didn't say that. He said, Haddathan ibn Ulayya. He said, Ibn Ulayya narrated to us. So that gives us two benefits. Number one, it tells us that this person, Ismail ibn Ibrahim, is Ibn Ulayya. And number two, it tells us that this chain this an'ana here, this use of the word an, was actually one of his shaykhs, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba said, Haddathana. So that and he gives you extra confidence. So now he's told us, we've got to Ibn Ulayya now in the chain. So, so far we went with Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba, he said, Haddathana ibn Ulayya. And we went with Zuhair ibn Harb, he said, An Ismail ibn Ibrahim. Then now they come together, and they both said, An Khalid. From Khalid. Okay, now we have a question. Who is Khalid? And Khalid. Who is Khalid? So Khalid is Ibn Mihran al Hadda. And here, Sheikh Abdul Muhsin mentions a point. He says, just be careful here. Because the word Hadda, it means someone who mends and makes shoes. What do you call that? Not a cobbler? What do you call the person who makes shoes? Cobbler, isn't it? Yeah, cobbler. So the, his name is Khalid the cobbler. But he wasn't a cobbler. And he, uh, Sheikh Abdul Muhsin mentioned this, and now he mentioned it before, probably uh, in his sharh. Be careful here that you might think that he was actually a cobbler. He wasn't a cobbler. There are two different opinions as to why he is called Al Hadda the cobbler. But the most famous one is he used to sit among them. So where the cobblers used to sit in the marketplace, he used to be found sitting near to them. So he was given the name the cobbler, even though he isn't a 
a cobbler. He isn't hadza, and he doesn't make ahdiya, he doesn't make shoes. Qala haddathana al-walid ibn Muslim. He said, haddathana al-walid ibn Muslim. But now we have another problem. Al-walid ibn Muslim, if you ever hear this name, you need to sound the alarm bells. You need to sound the alarm bells. Al-walid ibn Muslim is a problem. The problem is Al-Walid ibn Muslim at Dimashqi. What's the problem with Al-Walid ibn Muslim at Dimashqi? Uh, Al-Walid ibn Muslim at Dimashqi is someone known for Tadlis or Taswiyah. That means that he is known for dropping people out of the chain who are extremely weak and then faking the chain to make it look like they were never there. So he's reliable. He's reliable. He's thicker. But if he says with an, then you got to be scared. Because he has a habit of taking narrators that are extremely weak and dropping them out of the chain. So you hear Al-Walid ibn Muslim. But here don't be scared. Because that's not Al-Walid ibn Muslim in this chain. Ah, here we came up to something. We have a guy called Al-Walid ibn Muslim at Dimashqi. But we have another Al-Walid ibn Muslim. This Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Ambari. Okay man, they have same names. Now. What do we do now? How do we know which one is which? So there are books on this. Uh, there are books of hadith like Al-Mu'talif, Al-Mukhtalif and stuff. Which deal with people who have the same name and how you tell the difference between them. But just to begin with, go back to, what did we say? Taqreeb, Al-Tahdeeb. And have a look at Al-Walid ibn Muslim. You see there are two. Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Dimishqi. And Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Ambari. Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Dimishqi. He is the one who is known for Tadlis Al-Taswiyah. And Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Ambari. Now, what is a different way we could deal with them? We could learn that Al-Walid ibn Muslim Al-Ambari, his kunya, the name he was known by is Abu Bishr. So we could have a look in this hadith if someone said, Abu Bishr told me, then we know it's the, it's the, the older one. But there's an easier way of knowing this. And that is by looking at At-Tabaqat. What are At-Tabaqat? Tabaqat are the, the basically... Where does the narrator fit in the chain? Is he a Sahabi or a Tabi'i from the older Tabi'een or the middle Tabi'een or the younger Tabi'een or from the Tabi'il Atba' or from, you know, is he from the Shuyukh of an Imam Muslim? Because sometimes you get one guy with one name and he's an Imam Muslim's teacher and another person with the same name, he's from Kibar Tabi'een. He's from the big Tabi'een. So there's loads of space between them. You will never find a confusion in them because one of them was around you know 250 years after the hijrah or 230 years after the hijrah or 200 years after the hijrah and one of them was around yani 50 years after the hijrah so you have like you don't find it so difficult so if we look at it, these two we see that al-walid ibn muslim al-dimishqi that's not the one here the one who is known for tadlis al-taswiyah he is Younger by quite yani, a bit, he is younger than this other uh, Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Ambari. 
Abu Bishr. So when we found that out, we can see when we look at the chain here, the chain's gone quite far. It's already gone through who? It's gone through Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba. And it's gone through Ismail uh, ibn Ibrahim ibn Ulayya. And it's gone through Khalid al-Hadda. And now to Al-Walid ibn Muslim, it's not possible for this to be Walid ibn Muslim at Damascus. Because it's too far up the chain. It's too high, it's too far up the chain. So we know when we look at this, and this is mentioned in Taqreeb al-Tahdeeb, he will say, Ibn Hajar will say, min al-Khamisa, from the fifth, min al-Sabi'ah, from the seventh. And in the introduction, he explains what that means. The fifth means this, the seventh means this, the tenth means this. And he tells you, so you can judge here that it's not him. But Al-Imam Muslim helped us out because in the second chain, he said, Anil Walid Abi Bishr. From Al-Walid Abu Bishr. Okay, Abu Bishr. Any Abu Bishr Al-Ambari, who is not uh, a Dimishqi. So now we got this habit of the problem of the chains of narration having two people with the same, the same name. And sometimes it gets really difficult because they can have very similar names. And sometimes even perhaps the same kunya, the same uh, nickname. And so... This is something interesting. I'll read you what Al-Imam al-Nawawi said about this. Al-Imam al-Nawawi said, it may be that some of the people who don't know the names of narrators confuse Al-Walid ibn Muslim, Al-Umawi, Al-Dimishqi, Abu'l-Abbas. And this is Al-Dimishqi. Abu'l-Abbas, the companion of Al-Awza'i. And this would not confuse the ulama. Look at what Al-Imam al-Nawawi says. Imam al-Nawi he says وَلَا يَشْتَبِهُ ذَلِكَ عَلَى الْعُلَمَاءِ The scholars don't get confused by this. And this, gets, this confuses the, I mean, the students and some of the people who read the book and they don't have any knowledge. I mean, the scholars don't get confused by this. Why do the scholars not get Because they are different in their nasab. Yani I mean, their qabila, their tribe is different. One of them he is given this, uh, he's Al-Umawi Al-Damishqi, and the other one is Al-Ambari. So you've got Al-Umawi Al-Damishqi, and you've got Al-Ambari, they're two different tribes, two different things. And the scholars don't get confused by these things. And also the country they came from is different. One is Damishqi, from Damascus, and he, or he's known by as being resident in Damascus. Uh, and the other one, uh, yani, uh, in a different place. And in the kunya, their kunya is also different. One is called Abu Bishr, and the other one is, uh, is uh, Abu Abbas. So Imam al is like, look, you know, like, maybe for someone this is confusing. But for me, this is so obvious. One of them, he's, he's called Abu Abbas, one of them is called Abu Bishr. One of them is Dimishqi, one of them is from a different place. One of them is Ambari, one of them is Umawi. And he's totally different people. So easy for Imam al but the first time you read it, you might get, you might get confused. And then he says, and they are also different in a tabaqa, in the, in the place where they come in the chain. And they are different in a shuhra wal ilm wal jalala, in their being famous and their knowledge and their, you know, their like their status in the eyes of the people. Because the the one that we said, the Damishqi, who was known for Tadlis al Taswiyah, was a big sheikh. They said. All, they said all of the knowledge of Syria ends with him. And, he, like, this guy, like, and they said like, he's one of the most knowledgeable and in his time. Like he was the alim of Syria. 
of Sham, of, of the Levant. We shouldn't say Syria, the Levant, yani that whole area. And he was the scholar of the Levant. And yani everyone in the Levant knew about him. And this one in Sahih Muslim here is not very famous for his, like, his knowledge. I'm sure he was a narrator, reliable narrator of hadith. But he's not like you know, this huge alim that everyone knows of. Whereas the one that did Tadlis al that dropped out the sheikhs, he was a big scholar. So, and Imam al we say they're, not, they're nothing like each other, totally different, easy to see. But that just shows you that you sometimes might come across something in the chain and then you get confused. And then he says, uh, and Humran, and Humran he is Ibn Aban, Mawla Uthman. Humran is very famous. His name is Humran ibn Aban. And he was the freed slave of uh, Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. And he narrates this hadith from Uthman ibn Affan. So we came to the conclusion this hadith has Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba and Zuhair ibn Harb. Both of them narrate the same chain. And Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba he says Ibn Ulayya narrated to me from Khalid, at this point there is no haddathana for Khalid, it's from Khalid, who says haddathana al-Walid ibn Muslim, and we know he is al-Ambari, from Humran, we know Humran is the, is the, uh, Humran is the, uh, the, the freed slave of Uthman, and he narrates from Uthman ibn Affan, Zunnurain, radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. Now when we finish with the last qala before qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we usually precede it with the word annahu. This is good grammar. It's not good to keep reading an Uthman qal. We should really read at the end of the chain when we get to the very end, we should say an Uthman radiallahu anhu annahu qal. That he said. It's just a grammar point. For those of you who know a bit of Arabic, it just helps when you read. And otherwise you're just going to read it, the shaykh's going to say khata. Wrong. Read it again. So it save you any that difficulty. The Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever dies. Now notice that Uthman here, he says, The Prophet ﷺ said. Okay? This, in this wording, doesn't give us a guarantee that Uthman heard those words directly. We don't have a guarantee that Uthman heard those words. Directly because the Sahaba, their habit is to narrate from each other. But if any of them says, I heard the Prophet ﷺ say, then you know that that Sahabi heard it directly. And it doesn't matter for us anyway. Because the Sahaba never narrated anything. They doubted even a single word, they wouldn't narrate it. Because of their fear of Allah, if they had doubt of even one word, or even they would either tell you their doubt, or they would not narrate the hadith. So we don't, we don't mind if Uthman heard it from Abu Bakr or heard it from Umar or if Uthman heard it directly. But if we gather the chains together, we may see did Uthman hear it directly or did he hear it from another companion? Because the companions used to narrate from one another without any concern. And that's why someone might say, how does Abu Huraira narrate a hadith about Bad al-Wahi? How the revelation began to the Prophet when he wasn't there. First of all, it's possible the Prophet ﷺ told him about it and when, was t- telling him about it when he was there. But it's also possible that he heard the hadith from Abu Bakr. And that's why someone might say, why is it Abu Bakr has so few hadith and Abu Huraira has so many hadith? 
this is a, a person who says this is a person who doesn't know the science of hadith how many of these ahadith were narrated probably by Abu Bakr in the first place but yani, the one who memorized it and kept it and transmitted to us was another sahabi because the companions habitually used to narrate from each other anyway this is a small point anyway so the Prophet وسلم, or sorry we should say the messenger of Allah وسلم, because the scholars of hadith they differentiate even between the word Prophet and the word Messenger of Allah. They don't like to change one for the other. They like to be very precise in their words. And this gives you confidence that the Sunnah has been preserved. That they're very careful in their words. They're not going to just say to you anything. Oh, I, I think it was something like that. Like, that's what we do this day. Or oh, I think the Prophet says something like this. That's what we do today. But those guys, that's not how they did things. They were so careful about every word. Look at Imam Muslim. Imam Muslim is telling you the difference between one of his teachers and the other teacher even though they both said the same thing. He paused here, he stopped here, he said this, he said this, then he stopped and he said like very precise. مَنْ مَاتَ وَهُوَ يَعْلَمُ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ دَخَلَ الْجَنَّةِ Whoever dies and he knows. Here it says he knows. That there is no God worthy of worship except Allah will enter Jannah. Before we go on to the fiqh of the hadith, let's just look at the second chain. Because it is slightly different. I said it's the same, but it's not. Even though it's uh, Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi listed it as the same. It's a supporting chain. But it's there for a reason. It's there to clarify to us a couple of things. So see if you can spot what it clarifies. So Imam Muslim says, Haddathana Muhammad bin Abi Bakr al-Muqaddami. So Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr al-Muqaddami narrated. Okay? So now there's no Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba and there's no Zuhair ibn Harb. Qala Haddathana Bishr ibn Mufaddal. Bishr ibn al-Mufaddal narrated to Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Qala Haddathana Khalidun al-Hadda. He said, Khalid al-Hadda narrated to us. So where do these two chains meet? They meet at Khalid. What is the difference? The first thing is, we know that Bishr ibn al-Mufaddal says, Haddathana. Just in case you were worried about Ibn Ulayya saying, An Khalid. Just in case you were worried about Ibn Ulayya saying, An Khalid. Don't worry. Bishr ibn al-Mufaddal said, Haddathana Khalid al-Hadda. So it tells us, Haddathana. Second of all, it tells us that Khalid is Al-Hadda. We knew he was Al-Hadda anyway because it, that wasn't, wasn't really possible to be anyone else. But it's not nice to have just one person's name, Khalid. You might get something wrong somewhere. So it tells us that Khalid is Al-Hadda. And then it says, Anil Walid Abi Bishr. It tells us that Al-Walid ibn Muslim is Abu Bishr. Qala Sami'tu Humran. He said, I heard Humran. So now, and we, we know that he heard Humran. يَقُولُ سَمِعْتُ Uthman. Say, I heard Uthman. And he saw Humran didn't hear this from anyone else. He, Sami'tu, I heard it from the, from the mouth of Uthman. يَقُولُ سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So now we know that Uthman heard it directly from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It wasn't something that he narrated from Abu Bakr or he narrated it from anyone else. He heard it directly from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And 
Imam Muslim says, Mithlahu Sawa, the exact same text. Not even a single word was different. I mean, the exact same text. So that tells us that we don't have to worry about Ibn Ulayya saying, An Khalid, because it, uh, Bishr ibn Mufaddal said, Haddathan Khalid. And we know that Al Walid is Abu Bishr. And just as a benefit, we also know that Uthman heard this hadith directly from the mouth of the Prophet ﷺ. And Imam Muslim puts these both together. And then after this, he's going to start giving you loads of other different narrations. For example, uh, the next hadith, just without the chain of uh, any narration, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anni rasulullah. لا يلقى بهما عبد غير شاك غير شاك فيهما إلا دخل الجنة. The Prophet said, "I bear witness there is no god worthy of worship except Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. No servant meets Allah with these two things, having no doubt, except that he enters Jannah." So you can see this is a hadith which is similar in meaning about لا إله إلا الله will enter Jannah. Gives you a little bit extra. We we'll talk about that, inshallah, in the explanation of the uh, of the hadith. Last thing I'm going to say to you about the chain of this hadith this is a benefit from uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad uh, Ethiopia. He said, "Bear in mind that this chain has three tabi'een, each of them narrating from each other, and that is because." Uh, Khalid is from the Tabi'een. Khalid al-Hadda. And al-Walid ibn Muslim, Abu Bishr. And likewise, Humran. All three of them are from the Tabi'een, narrating from each other. So it's not getting like, they are older than each other, but it's not getting like, it's not jumping like, for example, from generation to another generation. I mean, there's three people from the same generation. And this is also important. Because a person may look at this and think, okay, so Humran, he was a tabi'i. That must mean that the person narrating from Humran, who is Al-Walid ibn Muslim Abu Bishr, he must have been from the next generation down. And then Khalid must have been from the next generation. Hold on, we've gone too many generations now. So this is all part of the, the study of the hadith. So now we come to the meaning. And usually the first thing we're going to start with is the bab. Now Imam Muslim didn't mention a bab. He didn't mention a chapter name. But Imam al-Nawawi, he said, the chapter of the evidence. So it's evidence now. It's giving you evidence. That the one who dies upon Tawheed will enter Jannah without doubt. Or certainly, for certain. When a Shaykh Abdul Muhsin came to explain the chapter title of Imam al-Nawawi, he said, meaning the one who is Muslim and dies upon Tawheed. Now, why would, what is this all about? We need it to be clear, because it may be that a person doesn't, in fact, the statement of Imam Nawawi is perfectly fine. But people sometimes look into words, things, and misunderstand things. We want to be clear. The meaning of dying upon Tawheed is dying upon Tawheed, and dying upon the belief and the statement and the actions that go with it, that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah. 
Not the one, for example, who says, I am a monotheist, I'm a muwahid, but I'm not a Muslim. That's not actually, any aslan that in itself is not a valid statement. But there are people who say this. There are people who say, I'm a, I'm a Christian muwahid. I believe in monotheism. I believe in one God, but I'm a Christian, for example. So just to make it absolutely clear that the meaning here is the Muslim who dies upon Tawheed. The other angle is that a person may say, well, what about the Muslim who says, La ilaha illallah, but he, for example, was concealing kufr in his heart. The munafiq. So the munafiq, apparently, the Muslim, he says, La ilaha illallah. Does he go to Jannah? No, because he wasn't a Muslim in reality. So again, this is part of the, you know, part of the clarification. And the third thing is that a Muslim may do things that take them outside of Islam. Because we know that Islam has nawaqib. Islam has things that break it, like wudu has things that break it. Like going to the toilet breaks your wudu. There are actions that break your Islam. And if a person does one of those actions, the fact that they still say, I believe la ilaha illallah, does not make them from the people of Jannah. And this is important. Very important. Very, very important. In fact, it's essential that we understand this. That a Muslim, there are things which can take them outside of Islam. If a person does those things and doesn't repent from them and change them and they've left Islam, but they still profess to be a Muslim, and they still say, La ilaha illallah. Do we say, Dakhal al jannata qat'an? He will go to Jannah no matter what? No. Because he didn't have the condition of real, he really didn't die upon Tawheed in reality. But just to clarify, that that's why Sheikh Abdul Muhsin put that word in a Muslim that dies upon Tawheed. Even though dying upon Tawheed in itself can only be said of a Muslim in the first place. But just to make it clear for people that, for example, the one who uh, and he ridicules Islam, for example. He ridicules Islam and he makes fun of the Quran, he makes fun of Allah, he makes fun of the Prophet. But he still says, La ilaha illallah. And then he dies. We don't say about him, Dakhal al jannah taqat'an, and he's definitely going to be from the people of Jannah. No. Because this person brought one of the nawaqib of Islam, one of the things that breaks the religion of Islam. And that is making fun of the religion. And he's making fun of the Prophet, making fun of the Quran. It's from the nawaqib of Islam. If he repented from that and then said, La ilaha illallah, Dakhal al jannah. He will enter Jannah. But the fact that he just, and he said it, doesn't take him like the munafiq and so on and so forth. So we, we got that clarification. And he saw that nobody says the munafiq will definitely go to Jannah eventually. Okay. The next meaning is, what is the meaning of Dakhal al-Jannah? He will go to Jannah. Does that mean that the minute he dies... His grave is going to be expansive, no punishment, no account, no questioning. On the day of judgment, he's just going to get up and walk straight into Jannah. No. There are two types of entering Jannah. This is mentioned by, was mentioned by Sheikh Abdul Muhsin, it was mentioned by Imam al-Nawawi. 
because uh, as we're going through the stages, when we went to the Shaykh of Imam and Nawi, all of them mentioned this that there are two types of entering Jannah. There is entering Jannah and in the first instance, and without punishment, the person goes to Jannah. They may be asked questions, of course, but they don't get punished, they go to Jannah. And if you looked at their life from the moment they die until the moment they enter Jannah, there's no, there's no punishment. There may be questions in the grave, there may be difficulties and in terms of that, but there's no punishment. And they, they eventually, they, they go to Jannah I mean, straight away. The awwali wahla. What we call dukhulan awwaliyan. I mean, they enter it with the initial group of people who enter. And the second group of people who enter Jannah are those people who enter Jannah after punishment has happened to them. So they are punished with something for a time and then they enter Jannah after that punishment. So they're punished with the hellfire for a time that Allah decrees and then they go to Jannah. Which category are we talking about here? Both. Because a person may say La ilaha illallah and they may have certain sins and those sins may be punished and may not be punished. Because bear in mind, the one who dies with a major sin that he has not repented from. So the one who dies with a glass of alcohol in his hand. If Allah Azza wa Jal wants to forgive him, he will forgive him with no punishment. And if Allah Azza wa Jal wants to punish him, then he deserves to be punished. And he's deserving, he's done something deserving of punishment. But whether he is punished or not is what we say تحت المشيئة It's up to Allah. And we do not say that the one who died committing zina is in the hellfire for sure. The people who say this are not Ahl sunnah They're the people from the khawarij and from the, any, the, the different groups. Any. The Khawarij and the, the, the Mu'tazila and the others who said that the one who does the major sin, khalas. certain he's, he's going to hell. Ahl sunnah said he is under the Mashi'ah of Allah. He is within the will of Allah. If Allah wants to forgive him, he will forgive him with no punishment. Why might he do that? Because the person was and he had some good deeds he did. Or because Allah knows something in his heart. Or because of Allah's forgiveness he can forgive whoever he wants. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you're forgiven. Doesn't matter. You die drinking alcohol, you're forgiven. Go straight to Jannah. That can happen. And it may be that that person is punished. It may be that that person is punished. But when they are punished, will they stay in the hellfire forever? If they died upon Tawheed with all of its conditions, they will not stay in the hellfire forever. They will eventually go to Jannah. So for some people that will be very quick, for some people it will be a bit long, but everyone who is a Muslim who dies upon Tawheed will eventually go to Jannah. And that's what Imam al-Nawi said. Dakhal al-Jannah He didn't say Dakhal al-Jannah li'awwali wahla. He'll go to Jannah yani like instantly. But that he will eventually go to Jannah. Eventually he will go to Jannah. He may go straight away, he may go 
after, after being punished. But he will go to Jannah if he dies upon At-Tawheed. If he dies upon Tawheed. And it's important in that that we specify that this issue of, and, and we'll come to it actually in the Sharh of the Hadith, whoever dies and he knows that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah, he will enter Jannah. The problem we have in this hadith or the word we need to focus on, he knows. Because here we have a lot of deviant groups. What did these deviant groups say? For example, the murji'ah. Remember the murji'ah say that your actions have no relation to your iman. They said, see, we told you. All you have to do is know in your heart that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah. You can do whatever you want outside. Whatever you want, doesn't matter how much evil you do, how much disobedience, as long as you know in your heart, La ilaha illallah, you'll enter Jannah. And this is the statement of the Murji'ah. Why they took one narration, they didn't take the other narrations. And they didn't take the consensus of Ahl Sunnah on this issue. That the meaning of he knows here is explained in the other hadith in Sahih Muslim, the same hadith in Sahih Muslim. For example, we looked at the, the next one in which the Prophet ﷺ said, Ashhadu, I say, La ilaha illallah, and that I am the Messenger of Allah. Nobody meets Allah with these two things, having no doubt except that he enters Jannah. This second hadith explains or refutes two groups. Which two groups does it refute? On one side it refutes the murji'ah and those people who followed them. Who said you don't have to say it. Well some of them said you have to say it. But from the extreme ones among them who said you don't have to say it. Just you know your, my iman is in my heart. No, that's the opinion of the murji'ah. My iman is in my heart. That your iman is in your heart and on your tongues and on your limbs. And the second thing this hadith refutes, the second hadith, is it refutes those people who say that it is enough to say it on his tongue even if he doesn't hold it in his heart. Like even if it's like, like so the hadith here mentions, غَيْرُ شَاكْ And he like, it's not like, it's, uh, you, you can't have any doubt in it. You can't have any, any doubt in it. So this is among the extreme Mu'tazila and some other people who said that. You know, if he just utters it on his tongue, that's enough. Rather, Ahlul Sunnah say he has to believe it in his heart with certainty and he has to say it on his tongue unless what? We read what Imam al-Nawawi says about the unless. Uh, and Imam al-Nawawi
Okay. So Imam al he said regarding the hadith that we're on now, about the word Ya'lam. He said, Ya'lam. This is a refutation of the one from the ghulat of the murji'ah, the extreme murji'ah, who said that just saying the shahadatain in an open way will put a person into Jannah. Yani. Like they included the munafiqeen, and the murji'ah, some of the extreme murji'ah went to such a level that they included the munafiqeen and the people of Jannah. And if anyone just openly, and he shows Islam, but no, you have to have ilm, you have to really have it in your heart. Uh, he says, and that this cannot take place unless the heart accepts it. And this is restricted in another hadith. And Imam al is saying, in another hadith, this is giving us another restriction. So this hadith has told us, it's not enough to say. And the other hadith has told us, it's not enough just to have it in your heart. When the Prophet ﷺ said, غَيْرَ shakin fihima," They don't doubt, the person doesn't doubt about them. And this emphasizes what we said. Al-Qadi said, when, when Imam al-Nawi says, Qal al-Qadi, who is al-Qadi? Al-Qadi Iyad. And Imam al-Nawi quotes from al-Qadi Iyad extensively in Sahih Muslim, in his explanation of Sahih Muslim. He Qal al-Qadi. This hadith can also be used as an evidence against the one who says that it's only the heart that benefits and that saying the shahada doesn't matter. Because this hadith only, uh, this hadith limits itself to knowledge only. But the opinion of Ahl Sunnah, this is Al Qadi Iyab saying, the opinion of Ahl Sunnah is that knowing the meaning of the shahadatain and pronouncing them, it is not possible to separate between them. And you cannot be saved from the hellfire with one of them without the other. Qadi Iyad is saying, you cannot be saved from the hellfire without bringing both the knowledge in your heart of La ilaha illallah and the statement on your tongue of La ilaha illallah. You cannot be saved from the hellfire by just saying it on your tongue, nor can you be saved from the hellfire by just holding it in your heart. Accept. Accept. Who is the exception? The one who is not able to pronounce it with his tongue For one of two reasons Either he has a disability Which means he is unable to say it on his tongue Or the time is not enough So Al-Qadi Iyad mentions two situations Where it's okay to believe it in your heart And not say it on your tongue Number one If you are unable to say it on your tongue So for example Someone may come and, for example, in our, we're talking about, in, if we're talking about Arabic, someone may come who doesn't know Arabic. He doesn't have access to anyone to say the shahadatain properly. But he tries to say it and maybe he makes a mistake when he's saying it. But in his heart he believes it and then he, he dies like that, not having said the shahadatain properly. This person is included in the hadith because they were unable to pronounce it properly. They, were, they had an inability, like a disability. Or someone who is mute, he can't speak. Or she can't speak. So this person has a, a disability. Then you have another uh, issue. The person who doesn't have time. Like a person, for example, gets shot. 
And they're not dying yet. The angel hasn't taken it out of their throat. But they, they're trying to pronounce the shahadatain. But they can't say the words because of the, the pain they are in. They can't say the words. And then they die. This person is also included in the hadith. Because they ran out of time. They, they had it in their heart, but they ran out of time to say it on their they ran out of time to say it on their tongue before they died. And then Al-Qadi Iyad, he says, so there is no evidence for the one who went against the jama'ah, they went against the Ahl sunnah wal jama'ah in this issue because of this word, because these ahadith have explained, I mean, these ahadith have explained each other. I mean, one of them explains the other. So this first hadith we did about knowing refutes the extreme murjah who said it's enough to say it. And the second hadith about saying refutes the other groups from among the, uh, the uh, various different groups who said that it is enough to know it. From the, from also from the murjah and some of the, the mu'tazila and some other groups. So now we have come to the end of that hadith. We've taken the fiqh from the hadith, we've understood the meaning of the one that dies. Knowing that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah enters Jannah. And if we continued through the Bab, we would see what? We would see many, many other uh, ahadith on the same topic. And I have like, uh, I did the same thing for each hadith, like I wrote the explanation, but it's going to take too long. But for example, we just give you some of the ahadith that come after that. I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that I am the messenger of Allah. No one meets Allah with these two things, not having any doubt except that he enters Jannah. And that gives you a bit more extra information because not having any doubt also gives you another topic which is the conditions of La ilaha illallah. Because La ilaha illallah has conditions, just like Salah has conditions. And if you don't bring those conditions, then you didn't bring La ilaha illallah. You might have said it, you might have thought you had it in your heart, but if you didn't bring its conditions, it's like the one who said, I prayed, but he didn't have wudu. He has to repeat his prayer. So a person may come and say, La ilaha illallah, but really in their heart they doubt about it, they're not really sure. That la ilaha illallah is the, is the truth. Uh, these This particular second hadith is interesting because uh, this in the second hadith, just one of the things about the isnad I was going to tell you about is that this second hadith about not having any doubt is one of the ahadith that Al-Imam Al-Darqutani criticized Al-Imam Muslim for. Now I want to read you in full what Al-Imam Al-Nawi said about this criticism. Because it's important, it'll help you to understand generally the authenticity of Sahih Muslim. Al-Imam Al-Nawi said about this second hadith about not having doubt. That is hadith, uh, the hadith number for this one is... 44 27 and 44 in the 
يعني number by number one and 27 in the individual one and then the following hadith which is 45 and also still 27 because it hasn't the, the topic of the hadith hasn't changed so hadith number 44 and 45 both of them are hadith number 27 in the short numbering I want to read you what an Imam An-Nawawi said about this hadith regarding Darqutni because people I feel people make a lot of doubt for people using these kind of things you say ah you think Sahih Muslim is authentic look Darqutni said this hadith is weak so listen to what Imam Muslim or to what Imam An-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala said he said these two chains of narration are among those that Darqutni criticized and declared to be weak as for the first one he said it is weak because Abu Usama and others went against Ubaidullah al-Ashji'i. Al-Muslim narrates from Ubaidullah al-Ashji'i here. And that there are other narrators who went against Ubaidullah. So they narrated it from Malik ibn Mughwal, from Talha, from Abi Salih, Mursalan. Yani meaning that Abu Salih, Lakwan al-Samman, who is a tabi'i, narrates this hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, missing out Abu Hurairah. So what's the first criticism of Adara Khotin? He said, look, I, don't, I, I criticize both of these chains from Muslim. Number 44, number 45. I criticize them both. The first one I criticize because other narrators brought this hadith as being a tabi'i who misses out Abu Hurairah and goes directly to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that Abu Salih whose name is Dakwan As-Samman he was a Samman and he made uh, Samman and like uh, whatever you call the people who churn butter and dairy things see we don't even know these words in English anymore what you call them but he's a Samman Dakwan As-Samman Abu Salih narrated this he said Abu Salih said the Prophet Sallallahu said that's a break in the chain that's no good. Abu Salih never met the Prophet Sallallahu So this is the Darakotani's first criticism. He said Imam Muslim chose the one that says Abu Huraira, but there are two people who said this hadith is not from Abu Huraira. That's his first criticism. Wa'amathani, as for the second one, the second chain, number 45 that Imam Muslim brought, he said it is weak because Al-A'mash had difference narrated the hadith in different ways Al-A'mash one of the narrators uh, Suleiman ibn Mahran Al-A'mash he narrates it from in different ways and he, sometimes he would narrate it in one way and sometimes he would narrate it in the other way and it seems like he didn't memorize it very well because sometimes he would narrate it one way and sometimes he would narrate it another way and he said that he doubted it he doubted it. Yani Al-A'mash said, yani he had shak. He said, I doubt this hadith. I'm not sure about it. Okay. So the first thing an Imam al-Nawawi does is he quotes from Abu Amr ibn al-Salah. He quotes from ibn al-Salah. And then he, Imam al-Nawawi, is going to refute it. So he, ibn al-Salah is going to refute it and then al-Nawawi is going to refute it. Yani. So first he's going to quote from his shaykh refuting it and then al-Nawawi is going to refute it again. So he says, the Shaykh Abu Amr ibn al-Salah he said these two criticisms from Ad-Dara along with most of his criticisms for Bukhari and Muslim 
are criticisms of the Isnad, not the text. Meaning, Adara Qutani in the first place doesn't doubt this hadith is authentic. Nobody doubts. I mean, there is agreement. This hadith, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anni Rasulullah. لا يلقى بهما عبد غير شاك إلا دخل غير شاك فيهما إلا دخل الجنة أو كما قال this hadith nobody doubts it's authentic but the criticism is did Imam Muslim choose the correct chain to bring or did he bring a chain that isn't authentic so this is important what does Ibn al-Salah say the majority of the criticisms of Adara Qutani are criticisms over the chain, not over the hadith. So firstly, when someone says, ah, you know, you people think Sahih al-Bukhari is authentic. There are 70-something criticisms for Adara Qutani in this book, in this book, in this book. You say, okay, 80% of them are criticisms of the chain where Adara Qutani agrees unanimously with everyone else that the hadith is authentic. He never had a problem with the hadith, but he said, Oh Imam Muslim, you shouldn't have brought this chain. Because you brought a weak chain for an authentic hadith. And that means that we have no problem because we can read the hadith, the hadith is authentic, no issue. That's the first thing Ibn al-Salah, he mentions. Then Ibn al-Salah quotes from another, uh, quotes from... uh, Abu Mus'ud, Ibrahim ibn Muhammad, uh, Dimishqi, al-Hafid, that he refuted the Dara Qutani even on the chain of narration. He says, as for this first chain, you said that it is weak because this narrator, who is uh, al-Asja'i, you said that he, he narrated it from Abu Huraira, from Abu Salih, from Abu Huraira, and everyone else narrated it from Abu Salih, from the Prophet So you're saying that Al-Asja'i made a mistake. Or Daraqutani, you, you haven't worked this one out properly. Because Al-Asja'i hada is known for correcting the mistakes that the others made. Yani it's known that he memorized better than the others. And it's known that when he goes against the others, he is correct and they are wrong. Because he memorized the mistakes. He's called Mujawid. He memorized the mistakes that other people made and he corrected them. So they said, you know, you, you didn't think this one through. You said that Al-Asja'i was opposed by two other narrators. But Al-Asja'i is known that when he is opposed by other narrators, that he is the one who memorized and they are the one who didn't memorize properly. That's the first thing. He said, even though you've said this, I'll bring another thing. So he's going to bring another refutation against him. He said, this hadith has been narrated by Al-A'mash Musnadan. Yani Al-A'mash narrated this hadith in another, in an, like in another time and with a different chain of narration. And it's Musnad and there's no doubt in it. There's no, there's no, like it definitely was Abu Salih from, or it was definitely, this hadith was definitely from Abu uh, Huraira radiallahu anhu in, in the second chain. And from the narration of Yazid ibn Abi Ubaid, wa Iyas ibn Salama ibn al-Aqwa. And so he's like, he's just bringing all of the narrations that agree with Imam Muslim. And he's saying like, there's this narration, this narration, this narration, this narration. All of them agree with Imam Muslim. Then you say Imam Muslim brought a weak chain. 
How can he have brought a weak chain when he has support from here, 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 here? And he's mentioning all the names of the people who supported Al Imam Muslim in this. And then he says that Al Bukhari narrated the same hadith from a different companion, from Salama, from the Messenger of Allah, with the same wording, and it's authentic. So he's like, he's just bringing all of the proofs uh, for that. He says, as for the second hadith, you said that Al-A'mash has doubt in it. What is the doubt of Al-A'mash? He said, I doubted which companion narrated it to me. And Al-A'mash said that he doubted which companion narrated, was it Abu Huraira or was it Abu Sa'id al-Khudri? That's what Al-A'mash doubted about. Because in here, Imam Muslim mentions, Abi Huraira or Abi Sa'id. It's either Abu Huraira or it's Abu Sa'id. Al-A'mash said he couldn't remember whether it was Abu Huraira or Abu Sa'id. Okay. But there is an issue here. Al-A'mash doubted the companion. He didn't doubt the hadith. He doubted the companion. And doubt with regard to the companion doesn't have any effect on the authenticity of the hadith at all. Because it doesn't matter to us whether it was narrated by Abu Sa'id or Abu Huraira or Abu Bakr or Umar. All of them are honest. All of them are trustworthy. So it doesn't make any difference whether this hadith was narrated by Abu Huraira or Abu Sa'id. The point is that it was narrated with that chain of narration and the doubt of Al-A'mash doesn't hurt whatsoever. And then Imam Al-Nawi goes on to comment on this and he says that when there's a principle in the science of hadith where you have two authentic narrators and you doubt which one of them it is. For example, someone says, An Sufyan, from Sufyan. And you don't know whether it's Sufyan ibn Uyayna or Sufyan al-Thawri. Because some of them had the same teachers and the same students sometimes. You can't tell, is it ibn Uyayna or is it al-Thawri? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. Because ibn Uyayna is thiqa and al-Thawri is thiqa. So it doesn't make any difference whether it was Ibn Uyayna or whether it was a Thawri. It makes no difference at all. He said, if this is true about the chain of narration, then how about the Sahaba? Oh, Daraqatini, you're making this hadith weak because we don't know whether it was Abu Hurair or Abu Sa'id. What's the difference to you whether it was Abu Hurair or Abu Sa'id? Both of them were authentic, so why, why are you bringing this issue up? And then others from Al-Amash narrated the hadith from Abu Hurair. So they bring this to say that number one, the vast majority of the criticisms of Ad-Daraqutani are criticisms of the chain, not criticisms of the hadith. And the second thing is that the vast majority of the criticisms are not valid. The majority of the criticisms that Ad-Daraqutani brought are not in themselves even valid in the first place. And I thought that would help everyone just to understand a little bit about uh, and just to understand a little bit about uh, the issue of uh, people saying there are weak hadith in, in Sahih Bukhari and in Sahih Muslim. Yes, there are some ahadith where we think the criticism of Ad-Daraqutani is valid. And we, we, can't see a, we can't see a reason to defend Al-Imam Muslim any for it. Like, it seems to us that the criticism of Ad-Daraqutani is valid. But there's still no doubt over the general authenticity of the hadith itself. The doubt is whether one word, one phrase, one narrator, whether this came first or that came first, but the actual hadith itself, there isn't a doubt over it. So hopefully that has explained to you the nuanced answer.
to the person who says, are there weak hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari and in Sahih Muslim? Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar with regard to Sahih al-Bukhari, he said, the truth was with a dara qutni in six hadith. And imagine that. Like out of all of those thousands of hadith, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar said, the only time that a dara qutni got it right was six. In Sahih al-Bukhari. I don't remember the number for Muslim, but it's more than that. But six hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari only. All the rest of dara qutni, his, his criticism is invalid. And in those six, the actual text of the hadith in general, the general idea of the hadith is not, uh, is not questioned. But what is questioned is maybe a word here, a phrase here, and he, whether it was this narrator or that narrator, something in the chain. Six hadith out of all of those thousands and thousands of hadith. Six. That answers the question when someone says to you, are there weak hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari? We don't say to them absolutely like, we try not to give this absolute no. To the ordinary person in the street, you can just say to them, no, all of them are authentic. But for the student, you should understand the nuances. That yes, there are some ahadith that are criticized, but the majority of them are criticized in the chain, not in the text. And those that are criticized across the board, the vast majority of the criticisms are invalid. But there are a tiny number where we might say, oh, this word, I mean, we're not so happy with this word or with this phrase or and maybe this choice of word and one narrator said a particular word and one narrator said another word and we think that one of the words are, are, are not strong compared to the other one and these are things that you can have but it's very rare and you can go through pages and pages of Sahih Muslim and not find even one so this hopefully explains to people uh, that issue what I wanted to do now is just to read from a slightly different part of the uh, the book we only have five minutes really to be honest with you uh, but why not? And just so that we can. Uh, any people can. Uh, and hear something different, inshallah. So there were two other places I wanted to read from, and I had explanations, but subhanAllah, like we, it takes so long. You can see how long you can spend on one hadith. And wallah, even this explanation I've given you of that one hadith is not even comprehensive. It's just like I just chose from the notes certain things to give to you. And it shows you how much you can go into study just one hadith, wallah. You could spend a, a full week studying just one hadith. Your whole time going through the hadith, the chain, the narrators. But you come out with a lot of knowledge, wallah, when you study that one hadith in that way. You come out with a lot of knowledge. And then when you go to the, like, you don't just learn about that hadith. You learn about so many things, principles of fiqh, usul, aqidah, any benefits, things from the seerah, benefits in manners. You learn from the shaykhs. You learn about chains of narration. You learn about the science of hadith. You learn about so many things, just one hadith you study. But you study it, start with a simple explanation, and then you go a little bit further, a little bit further. If the first time you delve into the complicated explanation, you'll feel very lost. And very confused because you, it's, you haven't just taken that simple rajih. It's really important. Wallah, even in fiqh, and I'm saying to you, I really want to convey this to you. That when you study things like fiqh, the first thing you study is not what the Malikis and the Shafi'is and whatever said. The first thing you study is just the Shaykh telling you the right thing to do. This is how you pray. You put your hands here, and then you raise your hands and you put them on your knees, then you stand up and you say this, like just that. And then if he gives you the dalil, he can give you the dalil. 
But he gives you his correct opinion So you have something to hold on to When you're like drowning in all of those different opinions And those different things And we said the same thing in the science of tafsir So I wanted to read for you from Kitab al-Buyur The chapter, chapter of transactions Where do we find transactions? Which part of in buying and selling? We find it in the second half of the fiqh topics So we start with Kitab al-Iman then we go mostly through the fiqh topics. First of all is ibadat, the acts of worship, and then the mu'amalat, the dealings with people, like your dealings with people, like marriage and divorce and contracts and you know things like that. Uh, and uh, and there you will find the book of transactions. Usually it's after. Uh, it, it's usually quite early on, but it starts usually the scholars start with nikah, the first of the. Of the uh, mu'amalat Of the dealings they, 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 they talk about Is marriage and divorce And things related to that Then they go through a few topics Then they come to transactions And this is after Imam Muslim has mentioned A number of ahadith On the topic of uh, Transactions So we'll just take one for example Qala al-imam Muslim Rahimahullah ta'ala Qala fi kitab al-musnad al-sahih Fi kitab al-buyur Wa dhakra ahadith منها وحدثنا أبو بكر بن أبي شيبة قال حدثنا عبد الله بن إدريس ويحيى بن سعيد وأبو أسامة أن عبيد الله قال وحدثني زهير بن حرب واللفظ له قال حدثنا يحيى بن سعيد عن عبيد الله قال حدثني أبو الزناد عن الأعرج عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أنه قال نهى رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن بيع الحصى وعن بيع الغرر. So again, you've got a chain of narration here. You've got two chains together here. Yeah. Imam Muslim goes back to the beginning and says, وحدثني. Like, so he gives a chain and then he says another chain. And what you can do is you can learn how to draw the trees. They help. The, tree, the chain, draw the chain as a tree. So you start with Al-Imam Muslim Or you start usually at the top with the Prophet Then this hadith is narrated by Abu Huraira From Below Abu Huraira is Al-A'raj Below Al-A'raj is Abu Zinad And below Abu Zinad is Ubaidullah Now here the chain breaks off because an Imam Muslim gave us two different people who narrated from Ubaidullah. Well, actually, more than that. In his second one, he gives us uh, Yahya ibn Sa'id. In the first one, he gave us three Abdullah ibn Idris, and Yahya ibn Sa'id, and Abu Usama. So you can draw like, you can draw like trees off of it, and, and then you can, you can visualize the chain better to understand. Because sometimes it's a little bit difficult the first time you hear it to kind of picture, okay, how does this look? We won't spend too long on the chain because otherwise we'll end up finishing the class. But that the Prophet ﷺ forbade bay al-hasa. What are al-hasa? Al-hasa are small stones, pebbles. Al-hasa, they are pebbles. And al-gharar is uncertainty. Al-gharar is uncertainty or ambiguity is probably a good word. So the Prophet ﷺ forbade two types of transactions. 
in this hadith. The first one is selling with pebbles. And the second one is selling ambiguously. Yani ambiguously, it's, it's not clear what you're getting. So what do each one of these mean? Because the next stage we said is we go through the words. What does it mean to sell with pebbles? What the person would do is they would say, I'll sell you this land as far as you can throw the pebble. I'll sell you this land as far as you can throw the pebble for 100,000 dirhams. So the person comes and he stands on the line. He says, okay, we agreed 100,000 dirhams as far as you can throw the pebble. What's wrong with this? You don't know where the pebble will land. You don't know if you're going to get 10 meters or 20 meters or 100 meters or 50 meters. You have no idea where the pebble is going to land. So this is Bay al hasa And it is a type of ambiguous transaction. It's a type of gharar. And gharar is one of the fundamental things that are haram in selling and buying. Ambiguity. Ambiguity in transactions in general is something which is generally forbidden in Islam. It's like one of those principles, like riba is forbidden. So one of the things that is forbidden is ambiguity. Where you don't know what you're getting. And there are many types of ambiguous transactions. From them, if you've ever been to the fairgrounds and the amusement parks where they have those um, like ducks floating around and you have to pick a duck and then you get a prize. What prize? What duck? What am I going to get? Am I going to get a prize, not get a prize? What prize will I get? Is it going to be a big one, a small one? They won't tell you. So this is from this like, category of ambiguity. Transactions where you're not clear what you're getting. Likewise, the scholars said, for this reason, insurance. And some of them said insurance is from the reason of gambling, but insurance also comes under the ruling of ambiguity. Because I'm paying every month, let's say, 100 dirhams. In my first month I have a car crash, I might get back 10,000 dirhams. Or I might pay 100 dirhams a month for 10 years and get nothing. So I don't know what I'm getting. I'm paying something. I don't know if I'm going to get something or not get something. I don't know what benefit I'm going to get. That's not the only reason insurance is haram, but that's one of the reasons they mentioned because it contains ambiguity. And the Prophet ﷺ forbade bay al-gharar. He forbade a transaction which contains ambiguity. You're not sure what you're getting. Ambiguity can mean anything, even in, in things like marriage. You know, a man says, comes to you and says, I'm gonna, I marry my daughter to you. Which daughter? You have to be precise in matters of transactions. So you know, each side knows what they're getting. You know what you're getting and they know what they are, what they are getting. And so this gave us a complete general principle because the, the selling with pebbles is a kind of ambiguous transaction. So the selling of pebbles is an example of uh, an ambiguous transaction. And this is an example of at, uh, al-am al-khas, where the Prophet ﷺ gives you, this is an asul al-fiqh principle, he gives you a general uh, ruling after giving you a specific one. So he started off by saying that it's not allowed to sell using the pebbles, and then give you the general ruling that any transaction that contains ambiguity is not allowed. One is specific, one is general. So you can take some usul al-fiqh 
benefits from that. Also from the benefits you can take from usul al-fiqh, from the hadith, is the, is the word naha, the Prophet ﷺ forbade. What does that mean? It means that it is haram. And what does that mean about the transaction? Did the transaction go through or did it not go through? And for example, if I paid someone a hundred thousand dirhams for throwing a pebble to buy some land, did that land become my property or not? What have you learnt in Al-Waraqat when you did Sheikh Abdul Rahman? No. Because generally, this nahi and this tahreem, what, what does it lead to? It leads to butlan. And the transaction is invalid. So we say to the person, give him back your money, give, and the land is not, and the land never passed to you. There was no tanfid. It didn't go. The, tra- the, the ruling didn't happen. It didn't pass from his possession to your possession. Because it was done with something that is haram. So you benefit like a lot of like a lot of things from these hadith. And of course, what do you expect to find before and after in Sahih Muslim? All of that hadith that deal with uncertainty, selling with uncertainty, all in one place. The different types. The one where they throw the there is a one where they threw the sticks. And whatever the stick lands on, you like this is like the, the picking the ducks and the throwing balls at the at the, at the cans in the fun fair. Like they, they throw the stick. And whatever the stick lands on, you can get it. Or the person says, I'll sell you a piece of material for 10 dirhams. One of these pieces of material. You don't know whether it's going to have holes in it, marks on it, good quality, bad quality. And one of these, one of these behind me. You don't know what you're getting. 10 dirhams. Okay, give me 10 dirhams, right? And then he goes and finds you any random piece. It might be big, it might be small, it might be any color, it might be have holes in it, it might be damaged, it might be poor quality, it might be good quality, you don't know what you're getting. So these are types of transaction that the Prophet ﷺ forbade. Because people don't know. Now that's different from something, for example, like an auction, where you might not know the ins and outs of what's in the item, but you have the ability to look at it. You can go and you can, you know, you can look at the car, you can look at it underneath. If you know what you're doing with cars, you can switch the engine, you can listen to it. And you can make your decision. And the, uh, this comes under another ruling that the seller is not allowed to hide the flaws. You know, he's not allowed to take milk and put water in and stir it and then say pure milk. You know, he has to say this is milk stirred with water, for example, and so on. And you know, these are so this gives you some principles and the principle, that beautiful principle of selling about prohibiting all transactions which contain ambiguity. And of course, there are details. There are some rulings, fiqh issues in this. At least it gives you a, a nice general overview. So the purpose of this lesson, to be honest with you, we had it was it's difficult, but we wanted just to give you a practical example of going through a hadith in Sahih Muslim. I still want to emphasize to you what I said in the beginning about the methodology that you should ideally first of all listen to an explanation which is very simple and basic. Or read a book which is very simple and basic. Then build yourself up to the more complicated books so you get more and you can do it hadith by hadith or you can read the whole book once and then read it again with a more complicated explanation and again with a more complicated one try to focus upon Arabic where you can and you don't be scared of the Arabic at least read it in Arabic even if you even if you trust the translator and you read it in English later on but try at least to read it in Arabic because you may come across some things where you just your mind just tells you no, the translator there went off on a, on a tangent. And try to follow that methodology of going with some structure. First of all, look at the chain, the authenticity, 
Then look at the words you don't understand in the text. Then look at the fiqh. Then look at the benefits. Possibly, you know, when you begin, if, if you're in a new chapter, look at the relationship between the chapter heading and the hadith. And so on. So hopefully this has given you like a, a practical example of how to do that. Um, and of course, you know, we, we are always limited in the English language. We usually have very little available to us. But alhamdulillah, with a bit of looking, a bit of searching, you can find alhamdulillah something which will be enough for you to get started with this beautiful book, Sahih Muslim, uh, which is really an essential book for the student. And as we said, remember what I said, that when you quote a hadith, if the hadith is in Sahih Muslim, you should quote the wording from from Sahih Muslim if you can, unless you have a reason to quote the other wording. For example, you want to show a particular word or a particular phrase. But generally, you should try to quote from Sahih Muslim because of its accuracy. Look how accurate Imam Muslim was. Even when his teacher said, one of them said an and one of them said haddathana, he brought them both and he told you which teacher said, which teacher said which. So inshallah, this is hopefully something that will help you in your studies going forward. ta'ala. And inshallah, I think, we're going to make the home assignment, which is home assignment number three, for module three, probably going to be around Sahih Muslim. So, gives you some practical practice of what we've learned, inshallah. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best.